Ikea is a strange place. Imagine a department store. Now imagine your home. This, in a nutshell, is the curious IKEA. In a typical department store, everything is lined in aisles. Chairs in aisle one, tables in aisle four. Everything perfect in its place. Easy for finding what you're looking for by reading off the signs hanging above each walkway. IKEA is none of these. IKEA is set up like your home. Kitchen area for kitchen things, bedroom for bedroom things. The floor is lined with arrows, directing their audience from point A to point B, allowing all to take their time looking at the rooms. Rooms that are completely set together with fake books lining the bookshelves, a flat screen TV made of cardboard, and cabinets that contain bowls and food jars. Everything is for sale. Every item from the couches to the tiny lamps that light the reading desks. Even the light bulbs themselves can be picked up. There's a tag attached with a printed serial number that correlates to its location elsewhere in the warehouse. You don't pick up the items directly from the floor. At the start of your shopping journey, you're given a slip of paper and a pencil. On that paper are rows and columns giving you the necessary structure to write down an item's serial number. You're basically creating a grocery list for things that you plan on purchasing later. Now let's say you did some research online and have an idea of what you're looking for. Keep in mind that IKEA is not small. The largest store is actually located in South Korea at a mammoth 640,000 square feet or 59,000 square meters. That's the same as placing over 13 football fields together. Now keep in mind, this is the biggest IKEA store, but trust me, they are huge. But all of that time wasted on the internet? Fear not, for IKEA has the answer. Scattered throughout the store are shortcuts, doorways that allow you to skip large sections of the store that you don't need to walk through. Already have the location numbers of the merchandise you want? Well, you can jump right into the warehouse, pick up your stuff, and skip the store entirely. Just grab it and go. From a department store standpoint, this is deemed as a radical new idea in furniture sales. Applying these concepts to video games though, we've been doing this for years. So here's the question. Which of these are you using in your game to walk your players along? And why aren't you using all of them? The IKEA near me has what can only be described as flow. The floors are set in such a way that you naturally walk around in the correct fashion that the store wants you to. There's nothing pushing you along exactly, you just walk forward. Each room is fixed to help you navigate around without much help and you never feel lost. You just keep moving forward. This form of tutorial is the hardest, yet the most rewarding in video games. Because it's not just a simple switch that you turn on and off. It's a combination of level design, game feel, and gameplay mechanics. Take, for instance, 
Super Mario Brothers for the NES. World 1-1 to be exact. At the start of the level, Mario is positioned to the far left side of the screen. There's no danger, collectibles, or anything to really showcase. It's just you and Mario. And the timer that's clicking down. This shows the player that regardless of what lies ahead, you are always trying to beat the clock. With no immediate danger to avoid, this gives the player a chance to jump around, move back and forth, get a feel for the controls. Keep in mind that there's only four buttons at this point and a directional pad. Anyone can pretty much get the general idea down in just a few seconds. Now picture the first screen again. Mario's on the far left hand side of the screen. There's so much negative space on the right that it draws your eye in. It makes you wonder, well I wonder what's over there. Moving a little to the right, a coin block comes into view. It's stationary, flashing, and appears enticing. That's the most interesting thing on the screen now that we've gotten over how high Mario can jump. If you move a little more to the right, and the Goomba finally makes his appearance. It's simply walking, but right towards you. The coin block, again, stationary, not moving. But the Goomba, he's something else. The Goomba comes off as hostile, racing straight towards you. And that face, you panic. Luckily, there's enough room about that you can jump right over him. Remember, we don't know that we can stomp on enemies yet. As a player, you've learned all of this within the first few seconds of the game. No unruly commentators interrupting the game. No awkward signs lining the background teaching you that you jump with the A button. Everything is just so. All of this continues with the emergence of the Super Mushroom. Hitting the correct block, you will push the mushroom up and out. And if you pay attention, it moves to the right, never to the left. Why is this? If the Super Mushroom falls off the ledge, it immediately hits the pipe just to the right and forces the mushroom to move to the left, right in your path. The developers wanted to make sure that you walked into this mushroom, either if you liked it or not. This is how you teach someone your game. If you go back and think of all of the great games of the industry, games like this are always on the top. Mega Man X is another game that took this approach and absolutely crushed it. Didn't you think it was weird to have the intro stage at the beginning, where the others in the series, it would just shoot you straight into the stage select screen? This is the first iteration of the franchise on a new console. That means new players. You can't expect everyone to have played the previous games. Mega Man, Mega Man, those are called Hammer Joes. They'll swing their mighty hammer around and then throw it. So you better watch your- <laughs> I already know this! If Ikea's flow doesn't work for you, they have taken it one step further by placing arrows on the main walkway. But they aren't just stickers or painted on. They are fixated from the light above, appearing almost like they aren't even there. It's a subtle nudge to help those who may have not gotten the first intentions and still need a little help. This is your basic form of tutorials. Just throw some text onto the screen, hope they read it, and move on with your game. Sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't. If there's too much, then your players might just click through, praying when the real game will start. 
This is a good indication that your game may be too complex if it requires menu after menu after menu of text. Looking at you, Final Fantasy X3. Other times, important features get missed just because they aren't paying attention. You can either run the tutorials in the foreground, taking over everything on screen, or in the background. Braid has both of these, using the simplest of controls such as movement on the foreground, while once entering a level, the controls are placed like paintings and part of the background. Rogue Legacy actually took this one step further. Rather than wasting precious story with a boring tutorial, Rogue Legacy explains the first of your legacy while teaching the main controls. Realistically, you don't need this part of the game. Sure, it's nice to get some insights on what your character's motivation is and why you're fighting to win back this castle, but the core of the game is now available to throw you right into the action without the necessary learning curve. What you should absolutely not do, ever, and I mean ever, is what a developer of an acclaimed first-person shooter rated a whopping 92 out of 100 on the Metacritic has done. Known by some to be one of the best games ever in the genre, groundbreaking, culture-changing, game of the year, System Shock 2. Look at you, hacker. Pathetic creature of meat and bone, panting and sweating as you run through my corridors. How can you challenge a perfect, immortal machine? System Shock 2 was one of those games that if you're into it, you will never forget it. Well-created level design, intriguing storyline, brave new experiments on a genre that, at that point, had seemed a bit of a stalemate in the industry. System Shock 2 deserves every single accolade it's been given and more, with one technicality, the game's tutorial. Before you choose your career, you'll want to learn some basic abilities. First, you should go into the basic training center. When you're done with basic training, proceed to the advanced training area. At the start of the game, you walk into a gravity shaft and are greeted by an anonymous voice giving you directions. From here, he breaks the fourth wall, referencing the mouse, buttons that are on your HUD, and even talks about centering your screen. Now, let's try it out. Move the mouse. See how it changes where you look? Hit the tab key. This puts you in use mode by clicking on the MFD button near the bottom of the screen. This type of tutorial completely throws me off. How does this faceless thing know what I'm using and looking at? How does an NPC know that I need to press the C buttons on my N64 controller to move the camera around? How does an elf from the Kokiri Forest know anything about cameras and C buttons anyway? Now, of course I know the game is trying to teach me how to play, but to come out in this fashion is both lazy and laughable at best. You are better than this, so much better. When you're ready to continue, press the tab key to go back to shoot mode. Try changing between modes until you get the hang of it. Of course I'm comfortable, it's just a key! Know exactly where to go? There's a shortcut for that. Wanting to speed through and get straight to the kitchen section without to slumber through the bedroom and college dorm sections? There's a shortcut for that. 
Shortcuts are extremely helpful for someone who already knows what's happening and just wants to get to the action. I know how terrible it can be when you spend months and months on a story, only for a fraction of your player base to skip through it without as little as a glance at the protagonist's motivation. It's a sharp cut to the gut, but it's true. Some people just don't care. Or, more on a positive note, maybe they're going back through your game to play it again. Congrats, your game has replay value, and that is huge. But they don't need to play through the intros again. They just want to get to the action. Giving your players an out will get them to that action faster. You want it to be on the front face, allowing all to see that this is possible. Or maybe something smaller like Kingdom Hearts, with the ability to pause the cutscene. Added with the ability to pause, then skip a cutscene, much like Bayonetta. Or how about not just pressing a certain key, but the need to hold it down to perform a successful skip. This negates the possibility of pressing the key accidentally. Sometimes this is the difference between playing the game and turning it off. Because some of these cutscenes can be up to 27 minutes long. That Guinness World Record is held by the one and only Metal Gear Solid 4. Just like the department store IKEA, it's about options. You should never cater to the lowest common denominator, but you should also leave hints along the way. Intro stages like the one in Mega Man X make the player feel empowered when they discover something new. We feel like we've learned something on our own, and that is an amazing feeling. But you can't leave this to being an afterthought. It has to be designed from the ground up first. The first stage in any game will be the one that gamers remember the most due to the fact that they have to play it every time. If this tutorial falls short, then you will leave some to frustration at an imaginary difficulty that is set in our heads, or feel taken by surprise when something isn't explained correctly. This should be a part of the creative process. The conversation should never end with a, well, we'll just throw some text on the screen. Gamers will get it. They will, sure. But they may not want to pick up your game again or tell a friend about it. The easiest way to make the right decisions during this part of development is this. What games did I enjoy and why did I like them so much? Chances are, it seamlessly right-fitted you into the game without you even knowing. I am Eric M. Hunter, and this has been The Time for Indie Games is Now. For all of the links to articles and games that I've talked about in this episode, check out my website, ericmhunter.net. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe. Riding on cars!